Well, good morning. Great to be together. Uh, just a quick bit of news uh, on finances. Actually, we don't normally do this this time of year, but I want to encourage you and just give you a, a bit of a heads up as well. The encouraging news, you might remember at the end of last year, uh, towards December, we came with news that we were 100 and something behind, 100,000 behind budget. Does anyone remember this? Well, just to let you know, at the end of uh, uh, December last year, we, uh, the giving was over budget. Isn't that extraordinary? So... We made up the deficit and uh, added another another 40 grand to it, and um, added 40 grand beyond that. So that's wonderful news, isn't it? We want to encourage you with that. That um, God is at work amongst people to touch hearts so that we're generous. And people's response—it wasn't just a few people; it was a whole bunch of us all threw in. And um, gee, what we can do under God together is is quite wonderful. So praise God for that. Uh, without wanting to pour cold water on that, it'll be a wet blanket. By the end of January, we'd used up all that extra and we're now behind. So uh, anyway, there we are, such is life. Um, but bear that in mind as we come into this new year, the budget's gone up and so on and so forth. So, um, but uh, continue to, to press on. Good news and a little bit of a challenge. So how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work amongst us. We, we thank you so much. It's humbling to see your hand. Uh, touching so many lives, changing and transforming hearts, uh, causing people to be so sacrificial and generous. We pray for that ongoingly to be the case. Um, and we, we pray you'd use this very moment now, uh, this whole time together as we've sung, prayed, uh, seen others engaged, that you might use all of this, please, to stir us to love and good deeds. And in particular, we pray that you might stir us to see Jesus as we ought and respond as we ought. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's where we're going. Where does Jesus fit in your life? Don't say anything. <laughs> where does Jesus fit in your life? How do you see him? Uh, as, what place does he have? Now, that's a massively important question because at the heart of being a Christian is responding rightly to Jesus. Uh, and in fact, let me just have a quick little aside. I want to talk to you about, we're trying to build a picture of what a Christian is to make sure it's all crystal clear as we move on. Um, being a Christian is, is someone who is in right relationship with God. That's what a Christian is, someone in right relationship with God. And you don't get into right relationship with God by being better than other people. You don't get into right relationship with God by doing more good than bad. Uh, imagining that that might be the case, you've overestimated your goodness. If you think your good is going to impress God, it didn't impress any of us. Don't think it's going to impress God. You can't get right with God by keeping laws, keeping rules. That's not the way. It's not about morality. Being Christian isn't about any of that. It's about receiving a gift. It's about his life in the place of mine, substitute. It's about God who comes to give his life, to die on a cross, to pay the price that I ought to pay and to have lived the life that I ought to have lived and to give all of that to me. If, I'd, if I would but just humble myself, come before this gracious God and say, I've, I'm sorry, I've blown it, my life is not good enough, my only hope is your gift of forgiveness and mercy, won for us by Jesus. If you come with that, he in his generous grace gives you reconciliation with himself, gives you life, gives you eternity. You are now right with him. But, that's what a Christian is, but receiving that gift is then about entering into a relationship with the giver of that gift. 
It's about entering into relationship with the giver. It's coming back into him where he is your Lord and Saviour and your desire is now to know him, the one who has given his life for you, and to live under him, understand who he is and follow him. It's about having him in your life now as uh, Lord, Saviour, relationship. I come home to God to grow in this relationship. So the question is, what's that relationship like? What is your relationship with this living God? What place does he have in your life? On the fringes? At the centre? Where is it? Now, as we go through John's Gospel, this first-hand account of the mind-blowing events of that first century with Jesus, as we go through all of this, that's what this book is about. It's what the Bible's about. It's what this book is about. It's to bring us face... It's to do two things. It's to bring us face-to-face with Jesus, what He's done for us, who He is, our need of Him. It's to bring us face-to-face with this person of Jesus, um, that we might see the truth of who He is, understand Him... See, the whole thing is centred on him, that we might come to that. But it's also, secondly, showing us how we ought to respond to him. It's showing us how we ought to respond, by showing us different ways people did respond. You see the two things? The book is about showing us Jesus, central. That's what the whole thing it lands on him. But behind, next to all of that, is around all of that, is this... Uh, woven in is the way people responded to him to teach us what it is to respond to this one who is Jesus it is deeply profound this book John's gospel centered on Jesus but alongside that is concerned for us so my plan this morning I always want to let you know where we're going my plan this morning is to go through John chapter 12 uh, to sort of read through it very quickly get us all on the same page I know many of you have been very familiar you've been reading it through the week and so on but let's get us all on the same page. I'm going to go through it very quickly and then I'm going to pull it together and tease out three big lessons I think emerge from this passage about your relationship with Jesus, how he fits into your life. You with me? Let me take you through it. John chapter 12, let's race through the passage. I'm going to get down to the triumphal entry uh, there into verse 15, 16 and so on. First one of chapter 12, six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Passover. Just to fill you in on this, the Passover is a very important term. It's um, full of meaning. It was full of meaning before Jesus died. It's very much more full of meaning after Jesus' death. Let me give you some of this. Uh, It's one of the great annual festivals of the Jewish people, perhaps the great festival. It goes all the way back to celebrating the events of their rescue out of Egypt, 1,300 years before Jesus. So a long time before, under Moses, uh, called the Exodus. Some of you may be familiar with these things, Um, but I don't assume you are. Israel was in slavery under the superpower of the time. It's extraordinary to think, but Egypt was the great superpower. And uh, under Pharaoh, they'd been enslaved for many centuries and cried out to God. God rescued them under the hand of Moses uh, by bringing plagues upon Egypt to show his great power over the nations. And uh, it was devastating. Egypt finally relented and drove Israel out, get away from us, your God is destroying us. Now the last plague uh, that was the most devastating uh, brought death into each household unless a lamb was killed and its blood was sprinkled over the doorposts and uh, God promised that any household that painted blood, the blood of the lamb, killed in accordance with his expectations, any house that had the blood painted over the doorposts, that the, uh, the judgment of God upon that land would pass over that household. There's where the language of Passover comes from. It would pass over. Now, um, that created uh, an incredible um, 
uh, impact on Egypt, they drew, drew Israel, threw Israel out. Uh, but then Israel was given to celebrate that rescue by God every year in this festival, the festival of Passover. Um, and there were all kinds of expectations around the nature of the celebration. It would be done in households, but then once they established into Jerusalem, into the, into the nation of Israel, it was to then be done particularly in Jerusalem, where a Passover lamb would be slaughtered. You wouldn't now do it in your homes, it would be done centrally. But they would gather together for a six, seven-day celebration festival, um, and millions of people gathered into Jerusalem, we're told by ancient uh, authors, perhaps overestimating things, but it was a massive crowd of people that came. And it was also, it wasn't just remembering the past, it was remembering how in that experience God established them as a nation and made them special, His chosen people, Mount Sinai. And so alongside this reflection on the rescue through the Passover lamb and its blood shed was this nationalism. It, it, it was this kind of time when the Jews all gathered together in Jerusalem and said, we, we, we ought not be enslaved like this. We're great. We're God's chosen people. So it was a very nationalistic fervour kind of happened around that time. A little bit like Australia Day 20 years ago in the Shire. Do you remember how the Shire was 20, 30 years ago, as you've heard reports? Uh, a little bit like that. Now, what you have here, chapter 12, verse 1, six days before that, you see, six days before the Passover, the crowds are building in Jerusalem. Thousands are coming to celebrate this uh, and dream of greatness, um, a word full of meaning. But post the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened on the Friday of Passover, post that event, uh, six days before the Passover is full of meaning for us because it means six days before Jesus goes to his death as the great Passover lamb, as the Passover lamb who is slaughtered on the Friday. So this is likely now, so if you count your days correctly, it's a little bit complex, but if you count back, it's probably the Saturday evening after sundown, um, and uh, it's six days before that event. Now there's a dinner. Uh, verse 2, they have a dinner in, given in Jesus' honour. Uh, Lazarus was there, the Lazarus, the one Jesus raised. Jesus is the guest of honour, unsurprisingly, given the things he's done. Um, and uh, this is actually, incidentally, this is not the only place in the Bible you can hear about this event being told. You get in Mark and Matthew's Gospel a record of probably the same event, though Luke has an event similar, but it's likely an event earlier in the ministry of Jesus. And you can therefore add the pieces together, and it seems that this event happened in the house of Simon, who was once a leper. I dare say he's not now a leper, uh, because the Lord Jesus has healed him. At, at this event, verse 3, Mary took a jar of perfume, hugely costly, probably a family heirloom that's been passed down, a year's wage worth. And so we're talking 50 grand, that kind of amount of money, massive cost. Uh, and she breaks it, according to Luke's got breaks it over Jesus, uh, all the way down to his feet. And John particularly pays attention to the fact that she wipes his feet with her hair and the house is filled with fragrance. Now, do you remember how we started this morning? I don't assume you do remember, it's a long time ago now, 10 minutes ago, but <laughs> I don't assume, but what I was wanting to do when we started was to, this, show, this, this account is to show us Jesus and to show us how we respond. We've seen Jesus, the signs, the miracles, the, the significance of those miracles, uh, his greatness, his power, his power over death, 
He's the one who is life, who gives life, who's raised Lazarus, who speaks and breaks the path. And now John shows us how to respond. How do you respond to this one? With utter devotion. Mary has followed Jesus for a long time. When Jesus finally comes to the tomb, Mary knows Jesus. They're good friends, the families. She calls him Lord. She has heard him teach. She has seen the things he has done. And then she sees him do the impossible and raise her brother to life after four days in the tomb. And she is now in awe and full of thanks. He is the life giver. And she would do anything to honour him, no matter the cost. Family heirloom, over Jesus, gone. Now this triggers a reaction, verse 4. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, uh, reacts and says, why, verse 5, wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wage. Now, straight away, you get, Mary, you get Mary's response, utter devotion, and now you get a counter-response, which is almost the opposite. And I want to just pause here for a moment. We're going to come back to this, but just pause quickly. Superficially, he has a, he has a critique that's got some merit. Was this really the best use of $50,000? Um, the point that's made is, pour it on Jesus for a moment that he smells good, or sell it and rescue dozens of family out of poverty? Which is better? Now, before we go too far down this path, and I'm going to take us further down this path in a moment, but before we go too far down this path, John, the author, uh, bursts the bubble and he says, verse 6, he didn't say this because he really cared about the poor, actually, but because he was a thief and the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was hoping it was sold, put in his money bag so he could help. You see, this, this was, there was a different motivation behind what superficially looked like a very valid critique. And we are warned right at this moment about hidden motives in critiques. Then Jesus steps in, uh, verse 7, leave her alone, he replies, and he says two statements that are themselves shocking. It was intended that you should save this perfume for the day of my burial. It was intended. And verse 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Wow. We'll come back to this. Now, the next day, verse 12, uh, Sunday, uh, great crowds are going up into Jerusalem in preparation for this festival, cleansings that needed to happen, uh, buying sacrifices and so on and so forth. And they heard that Jesus was on his way up into Jerusalem and they've heard all the things that he's been doing. And there's a great crowd of people gathering to Jesus. And so that we're told that, verse 13, they take palm branches and sang the words of Psalm 118, ble- uh, Hosanna, which means save, Lord save, Blessed is the name is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now that last little phrase is not from Psalm 118, but they've added it in. What seems to be the case, the evidence suggests that every time great crowds go up into Jerusalem for the Passover and other festivals, they sing Psalm 118. Blessed are we who come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one. It's encouraging each other as they come up in the name of the Lord to the temple. Um, But there is evidence that Psalm 118 was also recognised as a psalm that anticipated the coming of the Great One in the name of the Lord, the King. 
And so they've found their king. And they're waving palm fronds, which is effectively their national pride symbol. This is their nationalism on display. We're, we're coming up in Jerusalem as a nation that's oppressed, but we're a great nation. We should be out from under this oppression, waving palm fronds. We've now got our king. The king has arrived, the great Lord Jesus. So they're coming up with him. And this is a little bit like um, the Aussie crowd waving its boxing kangaroo. So the palm fronds are their boxing kangaroo, singing, Izzy, 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 Oi, 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 or something like this as they're, as they're coming up in Jerusalem. And, um, and they've probably sung it every year, but only this time they've now got the king. They've found Jesus and they've added the words, Blessed is the king of Israel coming up. Get this, there's revolution in the air. It's a tinderbox. Do you remember the, phar- the leaders from the Sanhedrin? If we let Jesus go on like this, the Romans will... That's what you've got here, a great tinderbox. But to anticipate, they're praising this great king, Jesus, as he comes in, but in a few days' time, according to the other gospel accounts, when Jesus is on trial, when he had failed to live up to their hope, hype, uh, the great king, the powerful overthrow of Rome, they turned on him. This is a fickle crowd. And they are asked by Pilate, do you want me to release? No, we want you to release Barabbas. They thought Jesus was one thing, but he turned out to be another, and they turned on him. Now, they should have known that he wasn't what they expected him to be because of verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey to ride up. Not not a war horse, not some great and glorious, powerful beast, but a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And he sits on it intentionally. And John, in hindsight, sees the significance of it and quotes Zechariah chapter 9, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, there's the event. I've taken us through it fairly quickly. I hope we're all on the same page now. And I want to tease out for us the significance of all of this. I'm going to offer there's three big lessons that come home, and I want to drive them home for us. So put your seatbelts on, let's, let's go. So the first one is this. Um, the first thing is, there's more to life than meets the eye. There is more to this event than meets the eye. There are depths here that are not obvious. John is a very clever writer, though he has great material to work with. Uh, He's just reporting the events, but he's he's packaging and putting words around to actually help us see in deep and profound ways something beyond. He reports the event, but he makes sure he brings out... See, and it's obvious. Look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. There's more going on than meets the eye. At first, first, his disciples didn't understand why Jesus grabbed a donkey to ride up into Jerusalem. Only after he was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him, Zechariah chapter 9, and that these things had been done to him. Much more going on. He comes as their king, yes, but he comes as a king unlike they've ever seen before. Jesus knew the prophecy of Zechariah. And he consciously triggers it for people by getting the donkey. Chase it up later, go back and read Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, Emily read that the first part of it for us. It's a prophecy about a coming king. See, your king comes to you. Lowly and humble, riding on a donkey. Not the king you thought. He'll be a king that rules the whole world, not just Israel, but all the nations. But he'll come to end war, not created. He'll come as the gentle king who will bring peace to the nations. 
Zechariah 9. And he will do all of this associated with the blood of the covenant, says Zechariah 9. He'll do this associated with blood, not the blood of other people, but as we see, the blood of the Lamb. They want a king who is a lion. He comes to be a king who is a lamb, who will give himself in place of his people by dying and shedding his blood to save them from their enemies, enemies that they can't see. It's not Rome that's the problem. It's sin, Satan and death itself. You see, what John does is he tells us that there are two stories going on here. There's the story that people saw was happening, thought was happening, and then there's the true story, the Jesus story. And all the way through, I mean, you get it there, verse 16, they didn't understand this at first. You get it back in John chapter 2 when Jesus talks about the temple and and John says they didn't understand what was actually going on. There's there's another layer happening here. But you also get it in chapter 12, verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should... She should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What are you talking about burial, Jesus? You're the great warrior king. You've you've come to save and defeat and conquer. But Jesus alone knows that he comes to die. And by dying, conquer. You know, it's impossible to understand the account of Jesus' life if you miss the centrality of the death of Jesus. Let me just say it again. It's impossible to understand Christianity. It's impossible to understand the accounts of Jesus unless you appreciate how central the death of Jesus is. Everything hangs on him dying as a substitute. He knows, he sees it, he has lived with it. This has been his purpose. This is why he came into the world, to die. But no one else has a clue until after he is raised to life again. Just, I've been reading a book with a group of friends, J.I. Packer's book on knowing God, which if you've not read, you ought to go and chase it down. It's a very fine book. I don't know how many times I've read it, but reading again with a group. He makes the very helpful observation that it's not surprising that Jesus rises from the dead. Really. Because he is the author of life. He is life. Life could not be held down. Resurrection makes sense. You know what makes no sense? What's really shocking? That the immortal one should die. That he should give himself over to death. That's the extraordinary thing. But that is the purpose of Jesus. That's why he comes. And have you noticed that John has 21 chapters to his account of the life of Jesus? But here we are in chapter 12, halfway through the book, and we're now going to be focusing on the last six days. The first 11 chapters of his whole life, the last half of the book on the last week. Because John wants you to realise that death is where it is. Now, resurrection, of course, is natural and, and, of course, absolutely tied to it all as the consummation of the victory of his death. But it flows on from his death. No one else has a clue. What's happening? Jesus' death is the reason he comes because it's only by dying as a substitute that he conquers sin, Satan and death. And it is his glory that he dies next week. Jesus is at the table knowing what was coming. The people had no clue. Not even Mary. 
You see, Mary, Mary just as an act of devotion, gets whatever the most expensive thing she can and just pours it on Jesus and says, and, uh, and Jesus goes, it was intended to be kept for my burial. Who was it intended by? God. Mary had no clue that the burial was even coming. This is a God event. God here prepares his son for that moment when he will die with the most precious, expensive perfume, worthy of the one who is about to die to save humanity. God does it. He says, there's more going on than meets the eye. Now, that's particularly true of this event. This is the greatest event in human history. Uh, this, this is planned from the beginning of time the death of the, the Passover lamb to save us. God was at work in ways beyond human eyes could see. But I do just want to make the point from this, it's true of all of life actually. That that, that that same reality of God at work beneath what we can see about things that we are not often obviously aware of, it's true even now. You see, God is at work in your life, in our world, in our times and circumstances in ways that are not obvious. You and I, we go to work each week, we come home, we, we, we eat, we, we go, to, go to work again, we pay the bills, we clean the house, we mow the lawns, we look after kids, we put them to school, we get them home from school, we, we plan holidays, we do much that's good and beautiful. But under all of that and behind all of that is God's great plan that you cannot see his great plan beneath all of that is to seek and save the lost. Everything is working towards that end. That God might save his world from the, from the judgment, the righteous judgment to God, is the great thing happening in our universe, whether you see it or not. And the great danger for Christians is, people who have the lights turned on, who should know better, is to live as if that plan wasn't happening. As to live as if life is about home, renovations, kids, family, holidays, leisure. It is to live in darkness with paganism that fails to see what God is really doing. Don't waste your life. You have to do lots of these other things. Don't waste your life on them. There is far more at work in our world. God is at work. So there's more than meets the eye going on in this chapter, in this world. But let me give you the second point. It's the exaltation of Jesus. This whole episode and the whole of the gospel, of course, centres on Jesus. Everyone else in these events, they're extras. The centre of it all is Jesus. He alone knows what's happening. He gets the donkey. And there's this pathos about Jesus. He knows. He knows what's happening. And he sets his face to go there, to Jerusalem, knowing what's about to occur. It's the greatness of the man who knows where he's heading to stand in our place under the terrifying wrath of the God of the universe, to pay for our sins. He takes himself there step by step. He knows he's going to be betrayed, but he sets his face. No one else knows, but he alone. And there's a self-awareness of his greatness. It's the perfume moment. 
Leave her alone, he says, verse 7. I am worthy of this extravagant moment, says Jesus. Now, I do want to dig here a bit more. There is something disturbing about that moment as well and Jesus' words. Now, just I've been pushing people to think into this because one of the challenges is you read the Bible and you go, yeah, Jesus said it, it must be good and I don't think about it. But if you think about it, it's quite disturbing what Jesus says here. So do that with me. Why might someone find it disturbing that Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but you've only got me for a moment, so give me the 50 grand. Why is that disturbing? Sit with it for a moment. Do you know what it is? The arrogance of the man. Who does he think he is? He places himself above the needs of the poor. Who does that? I mean, you'll just imagine for a moment, one of our great, one of our, well, one of our political leaders, let's not call him great, Albanese, um, and let's not just sit with Albanese, let's use Scott Morrison just to make sure you've got uh, the various, you know, imagine Albanese, Scott Morrison, or Trump, or Biden, just to make sure we've covered all our bases. So um, let, let's think about some of our modestly okay political rulers, okay? Um, just imagine uh, you, someone gives them a million bucks and says, uh, Albanese, ScoMo, um, I want you just to have a, a, a smashing great party. This money's for you just to spend on yourself and go for it. And they say, when someone complains, you could give that money to the poor. Why don't you, Albanese, why don't you give that to Paul? He says, the poor you'll always have, but not me. <laughs> Do you feel it? Would you ever vote for him again? But that is exactly what Jesus says. The poor you will always have, but you won't have me for long, so spend it on me. Now, those of you who think these words are appropriate, because I've talked to many of you, and I had a family last yesterday, and we talked about this, and those of us who feel like it is appropriate, have you reflected on why? Why when Albanese or Scott Morrison or Trump, or when they say that, if they ever said that kind of thing, we'd be horrified and shocked. But when Jesus says it, we go, yeah. I'll give you four reasons why. Why is it appropriate for Jesus to say? Because he is God. He is God in the flesh, born amongst us. Second, it's because he's a servant God who gives up everything that he has to save us. He gives up his life to die in the most horrific death in the place of sinners from all nations. If there is anyone worthy of this extravagant gift, it's, it's God, Jesus. Third, the problem of poverty, physical poverty, is actually nothing compared to the problem of spiritual poverty. To be spiritually impoverished, out of relationship with God, facing eternal condemnation with God, is a far more serious thing to be physically impoverished. And fourth, loving God is the higher calling. Take heed to this for a moment, this is massive. Loving God is the higher calling than loving neighbour. 
you remember Jesus is asked, what are the two great, what is, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, effectively, there are only two commandments. And the first and greatest one is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. The second greatest is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. But you see what he does? He says there's two commandments, love God, love neighbour. Love of God is the greatest commandment, is the greater commandment, greater even than love of neighbour. Because God is our God. He is the giver of all things, the maker of all things, from whom all things come, to whom all things go, by whom everything is. And Jesus here is effectively saying, Mary's got it right, the love of God is the higher calling and I am your God. It was about to pay a price unfathomable and worthy of praise. Do you see what Jesus is claiming about himself? No human has ever talked like this and been outside of a mental asylum. No sane person has spoken like this. And now we come to the third and last point. You see, there's more going on than the eyes can see. Jesus is exalted and exalts himself in this. And thirdly, woven through all of this is how to respond to Jesus. There are three different responses to Jesus that occur in this chapter. There are two who embrace Jesus, one who rejects Jesus. Judas is the one who rejects him. He has seen all that Jesus has done, the claims that he has made, but once he hears the claims Jesus makes, he says, it's too much. You've crossed a line. And the other Gospels tell us this is the point where Judas decides to betray Jesus. But you know what's deeply terrifying about this? If you dig beneath it, what is it that actually caused Judas to react to Jesus? It wasn't just the claim, it was what he personally brought to the whole discussion. He was a thief. And when Jesus said he was greater than even the poor, Judas was triggered not just by that statement, but his desire to get what he wants from Jesus. There was a whole list of other things going on for Judas in his reaction. It had the appearance of a rational, reasonable reaction, but beneath that reaction is self-advancement, self-need. And here's the thing for us. No one has ever been purely objective about the person of Jesus. Jesus himself says in John chapter 3 that the reason people don't come to me is not because there's not enough evidence, It's because to come to me is to come to the light and to come to the light means revealing yourself and being seen for who you are and people don't want to come into the light because their deeds are evil. What Jesus puts his finger on is this, that no one is objective about Jesus because we've got our own stuff. To come to Jesus means laying down my own crown and I don't want to because I'm proud. So I'll find reasons why Jesus is unacceptable. It sounds good to you and me. But beneath all of that, Jesus will tease apart what's beneath the heart. One of the ways to test whether this is happening for you is to simply wrestle with this question. Um, And I've had this conversation with people over the years who have said, no, no, I can't believe in Jesus, can't believe he's true. And to ask a person in that context, if I could give you sufficient evidence to convince you Jesus is who he says he is, would you bow the knee to him and give your life over? And what happens next is telling Most people I speak to kind of say, that's an interesting question. They don't want to answer it. 
because there's more going on in our reactions to Jesus. You see, there's this reaction against Jesus. But let me finish with the two who do receive Jesus. Did you notice there were two? There's Mary who gives everything to Jesus, but there's also the crowd. The crowd who respond to Jesus, praise him as king, but are fickle. And I want to offer an analysis to make sense of the difference between the crowd and Mary, which I hope we might use together. Mary. How does Mary think about Jesus? She thinks about Jesus like this. She says, I am his. How does the crowd think about Jesus? He is mine. They sound similar, but they're profoundly different. Mary says, I belong to him. I am possessed by, captivated by him. Wherever he goes, I'll go. I'll give everything for him because I am his. But the crowd says, he is mine. I I possess Jesus. He's mine. I've got a great agenda, which is to free Israel from Rome, to do what I want achieved, and Jesus is mine to help me do that. Very different in the reaction. Mary didn't understand Jesus giving himself over to the cross, but she still followed him. She was at the tomb. She didn't understand, but her faith was rewarded because Jesus is worthy of her trust. The crowd only followed Jesus while he said the things that they wanted said. The crowds only followed Jesus while Jesus did the things they wanted him to do. Judas only followed Jesus while he got what he wanted out of the whole thing. And there, Mary and Judas, the crowd, massive, worlds apart. Which are you? Are you a person that finds yourself saying, I belong to Jesus, I am his? Or do you find yourself kind of more with the crowd, he's mine? Whilst ever, he runs with the things I want him to run with. Have you given a blank check to Jesus that says, my life is yours? Whatever you call me to, whatever you want to change, whatever you want to shape in my life, my life is yours. Or have you given conditions to Jesus? Have you come to the point of realising that Jesus isn't just one more piece of information to add into your life? He is God. He is our God. He is the source of your life, the giver of your life, the reason for your life, the purpose of all things. Have you realised that's who He is? And that He's this kind of God who has actually given His life for you in love and service. We owe everything to Him. So that Mary's response is the only proper response. To therefore only follow Jesus whilst He fits in with you and your tastes and your interests is to fail to understand who Jesus is at the most basic level. Now, how do you know you might be doing that? Do some self-diagnosis. How do you know that you might have come to Jesus with conditions? 
Well, let me give you a quick rant about our culture, and I'm going to beat some drums I've beaten before, and forgive me, but I just think we need to do it again and again. We live in a culture that's very persuasive. Um, we've, many of us have changed our views on all kinds of things over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and we're very much more aligned with the culture around us, and it's thinking about all kinds of issues and thoughts. Uh, we are living a very... Um, we're living a very wealthy, uh, uh, indulged life. We've got lots of capacity for all kinds of fun and so on and so forth. We're in a very difficult context because you will have formed your own views on all kinds of things. Politics, whether you're left or right, doesn't matter. But um, you will have formed your views on politics, whether you should be left or right, right or left. <laughs> you, you will have formed convictions about gender, men and women, how men and women should relate, feminism or not feminism. You will have formed very strong convictions about this. Marriage, how they should be shaped and so on. You will have formed convictions about um, uh, gender ideology, uh, um, identity and whether it's tied to your biology. You've got all of these kinds of... You'll have causes like racism or recycling or the environment, you'll have these... The danger is we are tempted to only follow Jesus if he agrees with me on the convictions I already have. And if I get the hint that he might not agree, I, do, I stop listening. Or I find a way to explain it so that it does fit again with me. And so hidden beneath that is the crowd response, really, of not that I'm his, but he's mine, and I take him where I go. You know, I'm going to live my life and bring him along with me. That's the crowd. It's not Mary. As I'm with Jesus, as long as he values the things I value and thinks the way I think, he is God, you're not. You know, there's a, a man called Tim Keller has coined the phrase, defeater beliefs. It's the idea that people come to consider the Christian faith with sets of beliefs that um, are intractable, which means if I find out Jesus actually doesn't think the way I think on this issue, I'm, not even, I'm gone. Have you got defeated beliefs? Do you know, it might be a denominational thing. You might, sit here, you might be sitting here from another denominational setting, you know, Anglican, Baptist, Catholic, whatever it is, and you might be thinking, I'm following Jesus as long as... He continues to enforce how I think my denomination should be. You know, I'll follow Jesus as long as I can still be, still be. Nah. You follow him where he takes you. He is God. We bow down to him. Have you come to Jesus like the crowd or like Mary? Now, none of us... None of us are perfect. We're saved by the gracious gift of Jesus. So it might be that you're sitting there today thinking, I've, I think I'm more like the crowd. Come to him with that. And he will love you and embrace you if you'd but repent. And by his strength, work on it. And what I want to do with you now, just with a minute, is actually give you a space to kind of just stop and think which am I? Have I really captured who Jesus is, that I am now his, or am I still living with he is mine? Take a moment to think on it. I'll invite the band to come up. Are you more like Mary? Wanting to be more like Mary, 
or are you more like the crowd? Will you go where Jesus takes you, wherever that is? Not sure you, can, you need his strength to help you, yes, but you want to be in that place. Or are you more like the crowd? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of who Jesus is, his majesty, his magnificence, his power, his might, his greatness. We thank you for his humility. We thank you for this revelation that he is God, that he is worthy of all that we give and that there's no other way to be with this Jesus. We pray, please, that you would help us have such a vision, a clarity about him, that we would be captivated, that we bow the knee, we'd repent of being like the crowd. Thank you for your gracious mercy in Jesus to us. Amen.